We will take our, our governing text from John chapter 11 today and um, following along there in John chapter 11. We will be, um, I'm just going to read a very, very first verse here, kind of gets the uh, context for the whole chapter running. A certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and his sister Martha. It's in here in this text, John chapter 11, we find somebody that uh, Jesus cares about deeply named Lazarus. The Bible says multiple times in this chapter that uh, Jesus loves Lazarus, one whom he loves. And of course, we recognize that Lazarus would have loved Jesus as well. And uh, there was a friendship, a relationship uh, between Lazarus and Jesus, Mary and Martha. This would have been a a very dear relationship. Um, You know, he obviously was not one of the 12 disciples, uh, but we do know that Jesus had other disciples. He had about 120 at one point he sent out. He had a group of 75 he sent out and undoubtedly had people that supported him, loved him, prayed for him cared for his physical needs. There are times where Jesus actually spent time, meals, uh, and other uh, arrangements. Maybe even this was the home that he stayed in uh, as he traveled in on the last week of his life as he was traveling into Jerusalem from Bethany each day. Uh, Undoubtedly, maybe it had been even this home in Bethany that he would have taken his quarters in. Uh, This was a, a dear relationship. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, this sweet family meant the world to Jesus, and, and Jesus undoubtedly loved them. Uh, and and it, the text goes to great lengths to describe that, uh, that Mary, Martha, and, uh, and their brother Lazarus uh, were friends with Jesus. The Bible then tells us, and look with me if you would, in uh, verse number 11. Uh, These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit, Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus saith unto them, plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that ye may believe. So what was Jesus' goal here in Lazarus dying? That ye may believe that your belief will grow, right? Uh, He'll also mention uh, that he wants them to understand uh, something more about uh, Jesus, about the Father, excuse me. Okay, Uh, the Bible tells us in verse number four, Jesus heard that he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So we have really a two-purpose statement here Jesus has made, God will get glory and you will believe in him. Okay, so that's the, that's the intent. Why did God let Lazarus die? Why did Jesus let Lazarus die? So you'd believe and that he would get glorified. That's pretty awesome. So this is the, the end purpose of letting his friend Lazarus die. So we know the context here. Now go with me, verse number 19. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And Martha said, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. And Martha said unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. And Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection. And the life, and he that believeth in me, though he were dead, 
yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We need your help today. We rely on you, and we ask, Father, you teach us. We thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it, that we could hold it in our hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Is being a pastor over the last several years, um, better than a decade at this point, um, and coming up on 14, 15 years of ordained ministry, over the years I've had uh, one of the saddest parts of the job that I do, or the, the path that I'm in, is uh, is doing funerals, and uh, you do quite a bit of them. I frankly, a couple years into pastoring, I was home my wife. I said, "I'm sick of burying my friends. I'm just tired of it." And as a pastor, you love the people you pastor, and uh, it seems like everyone I bury is my friend, and it it really breaks your heart. Um, years ago, when I went to work in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, I worked with uh, Brother Spencer there in uh, at Eastside Baptist Church, and one of the ministries that we had there was uh, we would try to provide a pulpit or provide a Christian burial service for families that didn't have uh, a pastor or a church that they went to. And so you went down and you put your name on a list. And uh, here in town, I'm, I'm on the list here in town for people who, uh, you know, don't have a, a pastor and they need somebody. They're, maybe they passed away in town at one of the, you know, the VA or, or one of the uh, uh, hospitals here and, and can't go someplace or they have their family just come here or whatever happens. Uh, there's lots of different reasons, but I've because of that, I've spent time with families who are hurting and families who have gone through loss. The hardest ones, I think, uh, are always uh, infants and, and children, and it just breaks your heart to know that uh, the family is going through that kind of pain. And, and you, you, you recognize through that time that people carry the burden of death differently. Uh, people, they wear that differently. We, we carry it in unique ways. It's not one size fits all. Everybody handles it the same way. It's just not true. And, um, and we recognize even in Scripture, as you look at the text here in front of us today, you find three parties uh, at play. You find the disciples who couldn't understand that Jesus, when he said Lazarus is sleeping, they couldn't even put together that he had died. And, um, and then we have Martha who comes to, to Jesus, and you can almost hear it in her voice. We read it intentionally because I want to draw from her words today. But right there in, in Jesus' face, it, she's saying to him, Master, if you had been here, he hadn't died. He wouldn't have died if you had been here. And, uh, and then it, it, Mary, his, her sister, says the same thing, same words. If you had been here, he hadn't died. Only Martha did it in Jesus' face. Mary did it at his feet. It was an entirely different arrangement altogether. It was a, a whole different arrangement, and, and so the response was even different. Now, I don't know if you remember the story of Lazarus, but Lazarus rises again. Jesus comes to the tomb and where, where Lazarus is, and uh, in verse number 41, he repeats back now what, what Martha says to him in the text we read just a moment ago. And, uh, and so we recognize, look at verse number 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was lain, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. He draws on those words. I want you to capture those words that he says. I'm thankful that you heard me. Verse 42, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Uh, spoiler alert, 
he comes forth. He just, he just walks right out of the tomb, wearing the, gar, the garments, the, the wraps of his, of his burial. And Jesus says, look, get, get him cleaned up. Let's, let's get some food in front of him done. Okay, so that's what Jesus does. The, 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 the whole of the story of Lazarus is Lazarus was dead. Lazarus is no longer dead. That's the beginning and the end of the story. All the way through is our reactions to those realities. What happens in between is the reactions of them. And so you find Martha has got to be one of my favorite studies in this text because of how she comes to Jesus and how she approaches him. You can find it with me as you look in verse number, let's look at verse number uh, 24. Verse number 24, we find here, uh, in fact, let's go back just a bit farther. I want to I catch from the moment she finds out. As soon as she heard verse 20, she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Now, that's, pretty an awesome, that's a pretty awesome statement, isn't it? Jesus, you could have done something to stop the, the path of death. Right? We we could you could have interrupted this at any point. Well, why would she say that? She'd say that because she's watched this happen. She's watched Jesus heal people. She's watched Jesus regrow arms. She's watched Jesus give sight to the blind. She's watched Jesus help the dumb to speak. She knows that Jesus is constantly breaking these things up. By the way, this isn't the first funeral, or is it the last funeral that Jesus is going to interrupt? I mean, he ruins every single funeral he goes to and just leaves them with everybody alive. just blows a good funeral up when the dead guy gets up. And so Jesus heals this the, every time. She, Martha trusts that. She knows, Jesus, if you had been here, you wouldn't have let him die. I don't know that she knows. Jesus was intentionally staying back two days he hung out, waiting to come because he wanted to provide an opportunity for God to get glory. In verse number 22, this is Martha. She continues on. But I know... So we're talking about what she knows now, right? I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. That's what she knows. These are, this is her doctrinal statement about who Jesus is. And she still thinks God and Jesus are two different people. She still thinks they're two different people. I know that if you'll ask God... He's going to give it to you. Okay, great. How did that work out? Jesus takes us, verse number 41, 42, and he tells us the reality of something Martha needed to get a hold of, right? Martha, you need to hear me here. Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. Now, she said God. He used the word Father, Elohim versus Jehovah, two different, two different pictures here. But she, he is speaking directly to his Father. Now, so he's speaking to his Father, which he is, maybe we can assume that's what she meant, but I think that's a big assumption. She still believes that God and Jesus are two different characters. Jesus says, this is my Father. I'm the Son of God. I'm not, I'm not just run-of-the-mill guy. I am God. He says, Father, I'm grateful that you hear me. Now, that's awesome, isn't it? She was right. God listens to Jesus, primarily because he's also God. (laughs) But God listens to Jesus. Then watch what God the Son does. This is what he does in verse number 42. And I knew that thou hearest me always. And then he tells the crowd, gets the crowd in on it. But because the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Verse 43, what does he do? Lazarus, come forth. 
So what did Mary expect to happen? Mary expected Jesus is going to come up there and say, now, God, will you please heal Lazarus, bring him out? And then Lazarus would come out. She knows that. She knows that if he asks anything of God, he, she knows that God will do what Jesus asks. God does do what Jesus asks because he declared it. You notice the difference? The, the difference is not all that subtle. She says, I know that God will, let, God will answer your prayers. Jesus said, I don't need God to answer my prayers. He already answered my prayers because he heard me and he sent me. Lazarus, come forth. The healing was not waiting on God the Father to get around to what Jesus wanted. The healing was right in front of him the entire time. This is why he can go ahead and make the declaration in verse number 26. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not waiting on resurrection to get here. We're not hoping resurrection shows up in a minute. We're not praying that resurrection will come along any hour. I'm standing in front of you. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not a hope so. I'm not might be. Jesus might be able to fix this. I am the solution. I am the cure. I am everything you need. Martha, you're not hoping resurrection is coming. Resurrection showed up and he's standing in front of you. So Jesus is making a declaration about his personhood while Martha is still giving us a doctrinal statement on what she hoped might happen. And by the way, isn't that the difference between the way someone who follows Jesus and doesn't follow Jesus? Isn't that the difference in the way that they carry this burden of death? Leonard Walker used to say, I do not know how anybody who doesn't know Christ can suffer death. I don't know how anybody can. I don't know how they can lose a family member if they don't know Jesus. I just don't know how it works. Because the reality is is that when we suffer the loss of death, we do it differently than the lost man does. It's just different for us if you know Jesus than if you don't know Jesus. It's an entirely different event for us. And the Bible points out why it's different for us. Jesus tells us this in verse number 26, And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. He that lives and believes in me shall never die, Jesus says. It means if, if I, my heart stopped beating right here in front of you and I died, I mean like I'm just completely gone. I'm here one minute, I'm speaking, boom, I kill over, life insurance kicks in, I'm gone, right? The very next minute, I'm still alive. The Bible says he that liveth, though he die, he, he still lives. He's still living. He's not dying. And so in, in God's eyes, he is teaching us that we look at death differently. And the difference between the way Martha has approached Jesus and the way that Jesus has approached Lazarus is that one sees this as permanent, one sees it as temporary. The issue of death is temporary in the eyes of Jesus Christ. It is not permanent. There is no such thing as permanent when you are God and you can change anything you happen to want to change, especially when you're introducing yourself to people as resurrection. Because when you're resurrection, death is always a suggestion. It's just always a might be. It may be death, but Jesus hasn't signed off on it. You see, he is, the, he is the president waiting to ratify whether or not death has actually happened. He showed up at funerals and ruined funerals because Jesus hadn't decided if they were going to die yet or not. They were always waiting on resurrection to decide if this was in fact a death. And so when we look at death, we don't look at it from our vantage point. We look at it from the vantage point of the resurrection. Jesus said, uh, he that believeth, though he's dead, he's still alive. 
So it's different. Paul even encouraged the Christians, we don't look at death the same way that the believer looks at it. He says that you sorrow, Philippians chapter 4, 5, excuse me, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. What is he speaking of there? We have hope to temper death. Death isn't permanent to us because we have the power of hope. We have the temperance of hope on our view of death and life. And so we find in our text. Now, I want you to see here, and Jesus is going to point a couple things out for us. Number one, Jesus points out a problem that all of us are going to face. Everyone is going to face the problem that Jesus points to here. The problem that Jesus points to is death. I want you to understand, you're going to die. 100% of the people who have ever drawn breath will die, right? It's, it's statistically proven. People born, they die. It's over. They were, they were here one minute. They will be gone the next. We are going to die. There is one evacuation plan from this planet, and it is death. It is just not being alive anymore. Now, it sounds gory. It sounds weird. It sounds creepy. You should have felt it when it was the cr- first crowd. The first crowd's primarily RTA, primarily our seniors, and they were looking at me going, please stop. Like, please, please be done with the death rant. I went on for like four minutes about how awful death is because it is permanent and every one of us will go through it. All of us are going to die. And by the way, it's not even that we're going to die because that's the way it works. We're going to die because we brought it on to ourselves. When Jesus stepped back from creation, the Bible says, God said, this is good. When Jesus stepped back, he said, this is a good thing. Man didn't start to die until man jumped into sin. The Bible says death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. You and I are going to die a death, and we will die because of our own sin. We die because we're sinners. We don't die because the plan of life is just so hard. It's just this sad thing. We are explaining to my kids this week, the circle of life, you know. Every time you run over a squirrel, you got to explain the dumb thing. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't hit a squirrel. He was already there. We found him like that. But you've got to explain, you know, it's okay because he'll, he's going to help feed something else. And, and we just we didn't talk through the circle of life. With, it's not just the circle of life. We die because of sin. We die because we have brought sin upon ourselves, and sin upon us has produced the fruit of death. All of us will face it. You say, well, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Well, you, my friend, are self-deceived. Look around you. You know the one constant in life is people are born, and people die. It's constant. It will always happen. People won't always be married, but people will always die. People won't always rejoice, but people will always be born, and people will always die. Why? Because that's the nature of human life. Jesus simply points it out to us. Look at verse number 19. And many of the Jews came, Martha and Mary, and comfort them concerning their brother. Why did they need comfort? They needed comfort because there was a death. People die. Friends surrounded them to offer comfort. And I tell you, it's a good thing when people, they gather together and you send cards and you send well wishes and you pray for people and you make phone calls for people who've gone through a loss because there is a need for comfort after someone's passed away. It's heartbreaking when someone dies. It's not a light thing. And Jesus wasn't making light of it. In fact, I, I, I do want to go out of my way to say it is not a small thing that people die. That's a horrible thing. It's a burdensome thing. It crushes the family that's still around. And I tell you, 
you, it, it doesn't get just easier because it's old, because of somebody being older. There's still people who have life, lifelong love and memories and, and heartfelt desire to walk with that person, and then they're just gone. It, Jesus isn't minimizing death, but he does point out that we all have it. It's all coming. It's universal. Now, by the way, preacher, why would you go so hard after the idea that we die? Because resurrection makes no sense if you don't understand death. I don't know any angels that are looking forward to the resurrection. So they don't die. A creature that doesn't die doesn't worry about resurrection. It's the ones who die that rejoice in resurrection. Resurrection matters to people who die. And you and I, the fact that we die, means that we get to cherish the promise of resurrection even more than someone who doesn't die. It's the reality that we are going to face death that makes us love the resurrection of Jesus Christ all the more. It's more beautiful to us because our greatest enemy, whether we like to understand it or not, our greatest enemy is not a political party. Our greatest enemy is not some some wealthy versus the poor. That's not our greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy is not time. Our greatest enemy is death. And Jesus beat it. Our greatest enemy is death. And Jesus has conquered it. Our greatest enemy was brought to us by another of our greatest enemies, sin. And Jesus conquered that one too. You see, Jesus is in the business of handling the greatest enemies you have ever faced or will ever face. The greatest threat that you will ever face in your life is the fact that this life will not continue on forever. You will die and you will deal with sin. And Jesus handled both of them. Now that's amazing to me. Jesus has taken care of our greatest problem. He has handled it. You see, Jesus shares news that every one of us need. The first thing we have to understand is all of us are going to face death. Points to a problem that every one of us have. But then he shares the news that all of us need. That there's life beyond death. There's life beyond death. And by the way, Martha even points this out. Martha says this. Look with me in verse number 24. Martha said unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I don't know why I say it like that. I'm just imagining the way Martha was looking at Jesus right now. I think she's just a little upset. Maybe it's because of the whole telling Martha, Mary to come in and serve with me kind of thing. I just She's got kind of this little nasally, whiny little voice. I, I don't know. I'll probably get to heaven and have to apologize to her. But I just imagine her mind, I know that he's going to rise again in the last day. Like, thank you for, for the doctrinal thesis. I, I appreciate that. Like Jesus needed brought in on all of the doctrines that Martha's got memorized. But that's how she's, honestly, I think that's how she's comforting her heart. She's comforting her heart by bringing up doctrine that she does know. There's nothing wrong with that, unless, of course, you're going back at Jesus with it. And she comes back to Jesus with this, I know that he's going to rise again on the last day. And I love, I love, I love Jesus' response. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, there is a truth that Martha's got nailed down. And by the way, it is not an, this is not an uncommon thing or some crazy thought she came up with. John chapter 5, which if you know how chronological things work, chapter 5 comes before chapter 11. Jesus has already taught on this. John chapter 5, verse 24, consider it. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is past 
from death unto life. So Jesus taught fairly and clearly there is life after death. Jesus taught that. So when Martha's speaking of life after death, she undoubtedly knows from Jesus' own teachings there's life after death. But she doesn't even need to wait on the teachings of Jesus. The Old Testament saints taught this. Moses, when speaking of Abraham, said this in Genesis 15, 15. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. In other words, he was saying to them, even then, Moses wasn't teaching that you went into oblivion or that you just died and stopped existing. He said, you go to your fathers. They taught that there was a life beyond death. Jesus is simply pointing to the same life beyond death death. And the Old Testament saints even before that, if you want to understand how Abraham looked at it at his own death, we understand how Moses sees Abraham's death, but Abraham viewed his own death according to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 10, for he, that is Abraham, looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. You see, so Jesus points to this reality that every one of us must understand, and that is there is a life beyond death. There's a life that is greater than the death that we face. And Jesus is pointing this out to us. It's a a reality that all of us have, and that is we all are going to face death, but then there's a greater truth that we got to hold on to, and that is there's life after death. So consider that. Jesus then presents the greatest offer in light of that reality. Look with me in verse 25. Jesus said unto her, I am and the resurrection, and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? This is Jesus' offer to Martha. Martha, your your belief is a little off, and I need you to believe something different than you currently believe. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, recognize that this idea of the resurrection and the life is is part of the I am statements, okay? The I am statements, we take the statements Jesus saying I am, he is literally laying claim to the words I am that Jehovah said back in the book of Genesis. And Moses asked God at the burning bush, who will I tell the people sent me? Who am I going to tell them sent me? And And God says to Moses, tell them I am hath sent you. In other words, the God who is existent, self-existent, always present. Jesus is laying claim to I am. He's laying claim to not just being a good teacher. He's not a rabbi. He's not a, he's not a yogi. He's not some, some spiritual teacher. He is laying claim to being the self-existent, always present, eternal self-existent God. That word self-existent is the key there. You've got to understand that the idea of Jehovah, the I am, is not just that he lives forever. It's not just that he's immortal. It's that he's self-existent. There's no one who started him and there's no one who can end him. He is self-existent. He chooses whether or not to exist. He chooses whether or not to be. And that is the I am. That's what Jesus is laying claim to. When he goes on to say this, though, recognize, just like he did in the nature of the bread of life or the uh, 
the door or the good shepherd. Jesus was making a distinction about himself. He was always comparing himself to something else. Jesus, as the bread of life, compared himself to manna. And so he said, no, 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 you had manna, but I am the bread of life. You haven't even tasted bread until you have followed me. Oh, no, 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 I know that you have porters that watch over your sheep. I am the door. Hey, no, 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 I know that you know, sh- know some shepherds. I am the good shepherd that give us, gives his life for the sheep. And so Jesus was always comparing himself. In other words, these were the distinctives of Jesus. Jesus was making himself distinctive in nature and in character. So when we hear him say, I am the resurrection, he is comparing himself to something else. Quickly, somebody in the Sunday school class would raise their hand and say, he's comparing himself to death. Well, that makes sense, right? I mean, because that's what resurrection's always compared to. Resurrection's always compared to death. If you're going to rise again, you had to have been dead at some point. If you were going to raise somebody from the dead, it's because that person was, in fact, dead. You're not waking up from a nap. That's not a resurrection. However, you ought to try that next time you get your kids up ready for school. I rise again. You know, wouldn't that be cool? Just kind of call them forth. At any rate, um, but the idea is, is that there is a constant comparison of resurrection versus death. We compare death to resurrection. We can even compare the death of Jesus Christ to his own resurrection. If you can imagine that, that by his own power, Jesus rose from the dead. Literally, his one minute, he is stone cold. He's not moving. His heart's not beating. Nothing completely out. And the very next moment, blood that was sitting still in the veins begins to move. Electrons that had no impulse begin to fire. A heart with no, with no one interfering begins to pump. A clear of the throat, lungs that were flat and deflated fill with oxygen again. And Jesus is back. Yeah, we can compare Jesus to death. And Jesus wins every time. Even my own death. Jesus said of himself, that he that liveth and believeth will never die. See, if I kill over and die in front of you the next three minutes, I'm not dead. I'm still living. Jesus sees it as temporary. That's the picture. But I don't believe he's comparing himself or comparing resurrection to death. He's comparing himself to Martha's belief about resurrection. You see, the statement that Jesus makes is not, I'm the resurrection, I'm going to defeat all death. She has said, listen to Martha, Martha says, I know that he's going to rise again in the last day. He is responding not about death. He is responding about her doctrinal statement about the last day. Martha, you're missing the point. I'm the resurrection and the life. Martha, I'm not someday will be resurrection. I am resurrection. Martha, your understanding is broken. Your understanding is not full. It is not complete. It is not all the way connected to the truth. Can I tell you today that there are many believers who are still in the fog, still misunderstanding the reality of resurrection. 
there are believers who can't wait for heaven to get here. But do not live a heavenly life today. They live, man, they are pumped about heaven coming one day, but they're not living heaven now. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Why why wait to live my life then? Live my life now. You see, Jesus is not comparing himself to, to death. He's not comparing himself to the people that are around there and what they think about death. He is looking at Martha, who has a level of truth, has a certain amount of understanding about how resurrection's going to work. One day, he won't be dead because the resurrection's coming. And Martha, you need to understand, Jesus isn't waiting for some day. Jesus is here so that you can live the resurrected life now. That is why he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And by the way, it's very important for us to understand here that he introduces both of these, the resurrection and the life, because frankly, the quality of your resurrection, the quality of resurrection being offered is dependent on the kind of life being offered. It's the kind of life that you're being offered that matters whether or not resurrection is important. Can you imagine if I tried to sell you on heaven and it was just slightly, slightly less bad than what you're already living? Like, if I tried to sell that to you, no. Every one of us are looking forward to heaven because it is intensely better than the life we're living now. It is intensely greater for those who are are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. The life to come is better than the life we're living. How many of y'all believe that? How many of y'all believe heaven is going to be incredible? Heaven is going to be amazing. Hollywood's tried to mess it up with these clouds and little angels sitting around playing harps and stuff. I would think that's hell too. I don't want to go to that. I want to go to the heaven Jesus describes. I want to go to the heaven that Jesus promises. That's what I want. I want the Bible description of heaven. Sign me up. I'm in. I want that kind of heaven. But what if I tried to sell it to you as slightly, slightly less bad than the one you're in? No, come on. None of us would want it. Why? Because the quality of your resurrection ultimately is dependent on the life being offered. Hey, I'm going to raise you from the dead, and it's going to be a little worse than the one you're living now. Be like, nah, just kill me. Just leave me. Just, just let, let me stay there. I'll just go wherever. Just don't bring me back. I'd rather not. No, 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 no. We, we know that heaven is going to be worth it. The resurrection into eternal life is going to be worth it because the life is so much greater. The comparison of this life to that one is intensely greater. And so we look forward to that one. You know why a lot of times Christians... Um, we're not living resurrected lives now. It's because we're not fully convinced that that life's better. I, honestly, I, I, know, I know what we're talking about. When we, when we start talking about living Christ's life now, preacher, you're going to start into this whole deal about how we can't watch certain things on TV. We need to read our Bibles a certain amount of times every week. We need to do this. And we need to do that. And we can't watch this. And we can't listen to that. And, you, and I know, preacher, I know what you're talking about. I know what you mean. You've got these things that you already have figured out in your mind. We need to fit into this little thing, and then we'll have Christ's life. I don't, I don't know, I, I think that's kind of Martha's understanding of how Jesus works. She knows the rules, she knows the product and how it's going to work out, but she's never, never been in full contact with resurrection. Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. 
You see, having, having the resurrected life is not about you fitting into your pastor's expectations or the deacon's expectations or your parents' expectations or your children's expectations. That's not the resurrected life. The resurrected life is you walk with Christ. You know him. He knows you. The, the, walking, the, the walking in a resurrected life is not, I've, everybody around me thinks my family's good, and, and, and we've got this kind of Instagram life where it looks good from the outside, and inside we fought the whole way to church. Now, that's not the resurrected life. The resurrected life is you get to know Jesus, and Jesus wants to, you to draw your life from him. If you don't, don't trust me, then can I quote from one who really did experience the Christ life? His name was Paul. He said this in Galatians chapter 5. He said this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I said Galatians 5, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. That was Paul's understanding of living Christ's life. I died to myself. I died to myself. Oh, there you go, preacher. That's it. I knew you were going to get there. There's things that are in my life that don't belong in my life. No, no, no. I didn't say that. Just die to yourself. It's not hard. When you die, you just die. You just die to yourself. But I, I, I really like this. Great. Dead people don't like anything. Did you know that? Dead people, there's not. They don't even poll dead people anymore because who cares what they like? They're dead. Die to yourself. I am crucified with Christ. What, what Paul is doing here is he is t- attaching the Christian to some of the great, I, the great Christ identity texts. The Christ identity text is to say, I am crucified with Christ. I see myself identified as one who's crucified with Christ. I identify with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I want to be known as the one who, who is connected to Christ's crucifixion. And so whatever else I might want, if it's not Christ crucified, I don't need to be a part of it. That that's the heart behind the, the crucified life. It is the person who says, I am so in love with my Savior that my life must be laid down so that Christ can live through me. That my life is, is merely a channel. It's merely a, a path by which Jesus gets to live through my life. No, no, no. It's not my life, my best life now. It's not, hey, look at the 10, 10 easy steps to have a great life. No, 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 no. It is, I have no life because I have given my life up that Jesus might live his life through me. That's what Paul says. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So what Paul was calling out as the as the resurrected life was: I am no longer living for me. Christ is living through me, and Jesus is offering to the believer any who would come and find out what real life is. Real life is we might have an idea or understanding of how it works, but you get to live it through Jesus. You get to know it through Jesus, and I am encouraging you today to know, to rest in this reality that Martha was living short of what real resurrection was. She had all of the doctrine nailed down, but the resurrection was standing in front of her, 
And there are going to be many believers who have lived their entire lives knowing that I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we have it memorized. We got it all figured out. And we could tell you. We could write it out on paper. We could give you a doctrinal statement on it. And never live resurrected now. And Christ is offering it. I am the resurrection and the life. You won't find satisfaction and joy because your pastor gives you a thumbs up on your post. You don't get satisfaction and joy because somehow you approved and got the appeasement of every sibling in your family. Who cares? Mom and dad are proud. Mom and dad aren't proud. Great. Are you living the crucified life? This is the measure, the measure of resurrection. It is not, resurrection is not compared to death. Resurrection is compared to any life that we would settle for instead of living Christ's life. And honestly, Christians, there are Christians today who settle to go back into the entrapment of sin when they could be living in resurrection. We, we have Christians who settle to go back to the way of feeding themselves from the world's trough of garbage, hoping that they're going to satisfy their soul through entertainment and happiness and appeasement. Somehow they'll be inoculated to the pain that they are not living everything that Christ has offered them. And they go back to the entertainment trough and they fill up and fill up and fill up on all the garbage of the world. And life is standing right here, the reality is as many of God's people will fail to live the Christian life at its fullest understanding of resurrection, not because we don't have the Sunday school answers implanted in our head, but because we were willing to settle for something less. My friends, we don't have to settle. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. We opened this morning in the book of Romans Chapter 12, verse number 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. That sounds really hard, but it is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Can I tell you today, Christian, God is calling every single one of you to walk that resurrected life. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a checkbox of everyone who approves of you. It's the fact that Jesus stands ready to fellowship with you and you allowing him to live through you. My friend, I invite you into that resurrected life.